New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Stephen Jenkinson, emboldens us to widen our circle of responsibility to the dying. We need to move it beyond doctors and nurses, funeral directors and nursing home managers. He counsels us to take it from the hands of professionalization and privacy and legislated monopolies by assuming a greater commitment for learning about death during the course of our lives and teaching it if we're able, and by being an exemplar, an incarnation of what we advocate when our own time comes. Today we'll be exploring how we can become an advocate for a revolution of death-centered care for our own death and for those close to us with our guest, Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen Jenkinson is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He has a master's degree in theology from Harvard University and a master's degree in social work. He was formerly a program director at a major Canadian hospital and medical school assistant professor. He has worked extensively with dying people and their families and is a consultant to palliative care and hospice organizations and is the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Canada and is the subject of a documentary film, Grief Walker. He's the author of Die Wise, a Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. Join us for the next hour as we take a deep look at redefining what it means to live and die well with our guest, Stephen Jenkinson. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, ma'am. I'd love to begin to talk about, first of all, the, the way that we are doing health care these days for someone who has a life-threatening illness. We're, we're using a lot of high-tech, or med-tech is what you call it, and uh, you talk about how this gives us more time, mm -hmm. and you question more time for what? Can you comment on that? Mm -hmm. Well, I will, but let me start by saying, you know, what I learned and what I saw, I did so in a very small corner of the world, and I, I wouldn't want to be understood as magically extrapolating from that to uh, to all corners of the earth and that everything I saw is pertinent and true everywhere, right? So with that caveat in mind, 
Yeah, where I worked is is one of the ground zeros of you know med tech sophistication on the planet. So uh, so this observation comes from there. You know, people go into treatment; they don't go into their dying. Probably nobody goes gets to their dying first, and then the kind of treatment options somehow proliferate subsequently. It's the other way around. You know, that's the actual experience of it. So you you come to your dying time as a kind of booby prize for how your treatment worked out. Right now, the treatment is a is a technically driven proposition across the board. So what you end up with is um, that you're in the hands uh, of a system that's not death-centered in its understanding of anything at all. Uh, because it's technologically driven, it's innovation-reliant, right? The consequence of that is that there's a religion that pertains to innovation, uh, which I characterize in the book as something in the order of, if you can, you should. There's a deep and obvious obligation that seems to ensue from um, running afoul of the medtech situation. It's it's a uh, it's a Ten Commandments rolled into one. So say. would you say like it's it's more chemo or more radiation or more 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 another round of it's it's more it's not so much a question of more in volume it's a question of um well it can go very much like this 45 minutes is allotted by the oncologist to tell you um to give you the bad news as it's called and the bad news is delivered in the first three minutes and there's 42 minutes left to do what and the way i've characterized it is three minutes to tell you what we can't do anything about and 40 minutes to tell you what we can do about what we can't do anything about and that's palliative care, what we can do about what we can't do anything about. And that circumstance is bottomless. What we can do, how can we respond without curing you, has no limit. Because the nature of it is, it's allegedly compassion-driven, okay? But it's not compassion-driven. It's, 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 it's technologically driven. And there's no limit to the technology available to respond to the facts of dying. It doesn't change the dying, except to prolong it. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is the, um, the acute demand for euthanasia, which is cresting you know, in ever-increasing waves today. I was asked by people to help them kill themselves easily once every two weeks for years. So this is not hypothetical for me. And I can tell you that the demand for euthanasia never came when the symptoms were out of control, when the pain was was mind-boggling. And at the very end of the story, no, the demand for euthanasia always came in that intermediate zone between diagnosis and actual death when nothing much seemed to be happening. So it wasn't about the pain? It wasn't about... What was it about then if it's in that limbo state. It's about the first question you asked me. What I'm saying is, and this is going to be very hard um, to take on, but the deep truth of it is that it's the acquisition of more time that prompts the demand for euthanasia. How bizarre. That the consequence of being granted more time 
in a culture that is fundamentally death-phobic and therefore no more believes in your dying than in your ability to fly. And that there's no such diagnosis as dying. The diagnosis is failing to thrive. Okay? Believe it. It's true. They, they, they would not, you'd never get a doctor saying you are no, dying. Cause of death, dying? <laughs> cause of death is dying. Never. Yeah. No, no, no. So generically speaking, it's failure to thrive. Imagine then that you're, that you're caught up in the web of a system whose fundamental understanding of the end of your life is that the best way to characterize it is failure. You don't achieve the ending of your life. You endure it. You fail to continue. That's the diagnosis. Well, I remember when my mother was dying of cancer and I went to the hospital to unplug her. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the doctor beforehand and I said, Dr. Drake, um, are, are we keeping her alive in, by artificial means? And he said, no, absolutely not. And I said, okay, so if you unplug her from this and this and this, then she will survive. And he said, well, no, no, she'll die. And I remember saying to him the, the words that came to me because it was just incredulous to him mm -hmm. that I would even think to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, well, you know, Dr. Drake, families have been coping with the death of their loved ones for many centuries now. And it, that was kind of, okay, it kind of stopped him in his tracks, and then it proceeded from there. So it, it, my question in, in that, or my support of what you were saying, is that there is, it's hard for the doctors or care, care people to say, oh, this person is dying. Well, hard, you know, from where is it hard? It's not hard as, a, as an accurate assessment of what's actually going on. There's nothing hard about saying that at all. Right. I think the, the difficulty of it is, again, the backdrop, the, the, the proper context for any of this discussion is not the particular belief system of the particular people involved. The only place that these statements are going to make sense at all is to realize that in my case, 90 plus percent of the people I work with died badly. That's hundreds and hundreds of people. Okay, so it suggests that, that with those kind of proportions, you, you don't have individual problems here. You know, bad parenting, not enough parenting, bad psychodynamics or anything of the kind. It's too prolific. It's, it's, it's at the level of um, social mania. It's not at the level of, you know, personal failing here. And that's the context to understand what's going on. So when you say 90% died badly, badly yeah. what do you mean by that? I mean that, um, uh, you know, to, before I elaborate, nobody chose to die badly. Now try to make sense of that, that most people died badly on my watch. Nobody wanted it to happen, not the people in the caring end, not the families, not the patients themselves. And it continued and continued and continued just that way. How? Answer is, of course, there is such a wide spectrum of understanding what constitutes dying well, and none of that spectrum is informed by the realities of dying. It's informed by what can we do about dying, not dying but how we might make it otherwise. 
How we avoid it. Another way of saying this is a death-phobic culture doesn't ignore dying. A death-phobic culture has a recipe for what good dying is, but it's informed by the phobia. It is not informed by the realities of dying. So, a death-phobic culture prescribes as follows. Yes, you're entitled to die well. Of course you are. And we all understand what dying well entails. And first and foremost, the least death is the best death. Least in two, in two uh, uh, ways of understanding it. One is least means shortest. Okay? And here's the problem with more time. How do you obtain a quick death after you've already been granted the more time that the chemo and the radiation has achieved for you? And the answer is, you can't. So then you come to the other vector of uh, least death, and that is whether you know or not. And in a death-phobic culture, the principal uh, visitation of suffering is not dying. It's knowing that you are. So in a death-phobic culture, the principal management strategy hovers around how much of this you know or are troubled by. So what do you get? In the family room at the end of the hall, the family's arguing with each other to the point of attacking each other over whether dad should be told or not. Like dad couldn't possibly know on his own, apparently, because he's only 75, so how much could he understand? Let's talk more about that subject in just one moment. I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson. He's the author of Die Wise, a Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, orphanwisdom.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson, and he's the author of Die Wise, a Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And we're talking about the, the death process or dying and whether or not to tell the dying person that they are dying. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm certainly not talking about whether or not, <laughs> but the dominant culture certainly does. It debates the merits of, of that there's any inherent good at all, frankly, in knowing that you're dying when you are, which to me amounts to arguing that there's no inherent merit in knowing that you're pregnant. 
uh, when you are, because why let it mess with a, a good thing, apparently, called, called getting on with your days, you see. No, the parallel is not, um, is not casual. It's absolute, item for item, uh, going down the line. Let me tell you a, a very brief story. So the patient's about 28 years old. I walk up three flights of stairs to get to her place. There's no elevator. She has uh, breast cancer with mets to the lungs. She's never coming down those stairs on her own steam. I already know this about her. No matter what the, the, um, the form that I've been given uh, says. I walk in. She's got nasal prongs. And so I'm giving you a feel for how advanced things are. She's sitting beside her mother at the couch. Two sentences for who I am and the service and so on. And I ask, what's your understanding of what's happening? She says to me, I understand I'm seriously ill which is not a synonym for dying, I want to say, because dying is not on the continuum of illness. You could be ill forever and not die, okay? They're not even related. And a lot of dying people are not ill for a long time too. But she says, I'm seriously ill, but really I don't let that be a big part of my life. And I'm thinking, oh man, it's going to be a lot worse than it has, a lot worse than it has to be. Then she looks at her mother, and her mother looks at her and then looks at me, gives, her, gives the thumbs up and says, that's my girl. And then the daughter looks at me and she says, and my yoga instructor says I'm on the right track. Well, what, who am I? Between mom and the yoga instructor, she's getting the amen that her obligation is to not let her dying be a big part of her life. As if this is possible. Never mind as if it's preferable. But this is, this is death phobia in action. So that's what I said earlier. Death phobia doesn't ignore dying. It prescribes our understanding of the best dying is the one that messes with you the least. And the only way you can achieve that is to establish some kind of firewall of awareness whereby the realities of dying don't intrude. And when they do, you're losing a positive outlook that you have to reinstate. Or you're allowing too many people with negative thoughts around you or things of that kind. And negative thoughts is, is um, kind of doublespeak uh, in the death phobic environment for knowing that you're dying when you are. But don't you know on some level that you are dying? And are, are you, is that a kind of denial or what is that? No. Um, my answer to the first question is, no, I don't think it's, quote, inevitable that you would know that you're dying. Look, the accumulation of symptoms is an accumulation of symptoms. They can be responded to by drugs. These are not a sign sure and tested and deeply reliable because who's seeking the sign? Okay, so what you have much more so is a, a regime that turns dying into a symptom sequence, not into a basic self-awareness of where in the arc of your days you are. There is no reward system in a death-phobic culture for knowing that you're dying when you are. There's a basically a punitive or at least a corrective system in place. A very good example of it is, I'm sitting with a woman who's dying. She's almost actively dying. She's close. And a social worker bounces into the room and says to her, you are not a woman dying of cancer. You are a woman living with cancer. Now that 
is the apartheid in awareness that I'm referring to. You see, we could ask between the two of us, do we both know that we're going to die someday? And, you know, we would probably both say yes. And then I would say, but, but how do we know that you know? And you would say, well, I just know it. I said, but does it in any way govern your days? Is this knowledge in any way indicated or available in how you actually proceed? The answer, generally speaking, in a death-phobic culture is no. There is no sign in how we proceed that this is a known thing. A suspected thing, a feared thing, a debatable thing, yes, but a known thing? Known means we can track from what you know how you behave. You know, Stephen, as you're talking, I'm I'm getting this like gut feeling. My my gut is turning over uh, uh, because for the memory of going, like my husband, I'm 42 years. He's in a, a nursing care facility. He's had a leg amputation from diabetes. He's been there for a couple of months. Mm. It's it, 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 it's hopeless. I can see it's hopeless, and mm. he's going on and going on. Mm. And Stephen, I at some point I came into his room and I said the words. I said, "Michael, you are dying." Mm. And I said it to him because I I was hoping that whatever he needed to do, whatever he what. What it, whatever in whatever time he had left, that he would do it, mm-hmm. whatever that was, mm-hmm. uh, make peace with whatever, mm-hmm. or or what, you know, I don't know for him. And within three days, he died. Mm-hmm. And I'm just and what? Why my gut is turning over? Did did was that helpful to him? I I still question myself. Was mm-hmm. that helpful? Telling him that. Well, you know, I wasn't there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just guess. I wouldn't use the word helpful, and I wouldn't use the word unhelpful or, or, or demeaning or anything. I would wonder this. What seems to have been the consequence of you willing to be candid in a way uh, that no one sought from you? And you might say one of the consequences seems to have been now that the obligation he might have felt to persist because you were still alive um, might have been the claim that that made on him might have relaxed in some fashion. I mean, that's a very subtle rendering of perhaps what went on and what you describe. You notice the language I'm not using is the language of giving permission. This is the one I hear all the time. Yeah. It's, a, it's an obnoxious proposition. Here's why. Because the idea that you're going to give someone who's dying anyway permission to die is a, it's a mother-child arrangement. It's a parental function to grant permission. You know, it, it's, it's not in the cards that we grant each other permission to live or to die. What we do instead as an act of love is to be willing to know the ending of that love as it looms. And willing to know it means willing to testify to it. You know, the, the ending of your ability to love in the way that you've grown accustomed to, that's part of dying, right? But nobody seeks this kind of strange affirmation 
that we're in the ending of what we've known about how to love each other. And dying prompts or pleads for even our understanding of what compassion and love is to be renovated so deeply by the realities of dying that our love serves dying. It doesn't serve continuing. And that brings up the idea, and I know that you speak about this in your book, that, and I'm certainly in this situation, so I was there as companion to his dying. He will not be there as companion to mine. Mm -hmm. And you speak about that a bit in the book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it it, it rang deeply um, true for me to look at that for the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. this is what is going on. Mm -hmm. And can you comment on that? Mm -hmm. Well, imagine that the deep obligation of people who love each other, when one of them is dying, is that their love become a servant of the dying and not some kind of um, refutation of it instead. And if, if it could possibly come to be that way, then one of the realizations of the dying person is they don't get to be there with their loved one. I mean, who wants to be there? It's a strange phrase. Who wants to be at their loved one's deathbed? The answer is nobody, unless there's a deathbed to be at, then you want to be there. So you see what it's prompted by. Not, it's not prompted by love to be at the deathbed. It's prompted by death to be at the deathbed. Then the next question is, and who are you now to the person who's dying? And the answer is, you're the one who will get to your death, perhaps, alone, whereas the person in the bed is being accompanied. And the fundamental difference between those two places is the place where your ability to love in this radical, on-demand fashion can appear. So the dying person can love the person who's not dying by trying to die well in such a way that their example becomes one human-scaled living example of what dying well could be that could serve the person that they claim to love when that person is dying in 5 or 10 or 15 years from now? What might the job of the person sitting in the well chair be? And the answer is to plead with the dying person to die well, not to not die. You see, in so doing, the love is fully not, articulated. I, I, not to not die. Right. What does not to not, not die. die? Well, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard it said explicitly, but, but implicitly it's there all the time. You can't die, I'm not ready. Not you can't die, you're not ready. You can't die, we're not ready meaning the family or, or... No, no, no. Look, there's a timetable for dying, and it's not dictated by the realities of the dying or the disease process. It's dictated by the general readiness of the people around the dying person and they themselves uh, to come to the realities at hand. And I want to tell you that this, there's a co-conspiracy about subverting the realities of dying to serve readiness 
and the co-conspirators are in the death trade as paid professionals. I'm not saying anybody knows that this is what's going on, but anybody who's been there will recognize the reality of what I'm saying, which is the patient is under no obligation to be dying when they are if their level of readiness does not warrant candor and directness in how the paid professionals approach them. You see, it's patient satisfaction that comes first. It's not dying. Let's talk about that further in just one moment. I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson. He is the author of Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Oh, yeah. I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson the author of Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And Stephen, uh, you just were talking about the gift of dying well. It's a gift to the living, in other words. Is, mm-hmm. is that what you're saying, that, that by our dying well, we are giving to life, in fact? Yes, although, you know, the best gifts are the ones that are the most cantankerous to, to gather into your daily life. You know, it is the nature of gift to be somewhat anarchic, especially the unsought gift. And, and dying as a gift is not something most people seek, of course, either as dying people or, or, or the people around them. So in what way is it a gift then? And, and the answer is dying well ends the idea of dying as a rumor and replaces the rumored and the feared aspect of, or, or the kind of empty anticipation of dying with the human-scaled possibility that dying is not something that happens to you. Yes, the disease happens to you. Nobody does cancer, right? But dying is up for grabs. Dying is what you do while the cancer is doing what it does. Now, that's the proper rendering of it. Even grammatically, in the English language, you can't use the verb to die in the passive voice, in a sentence, you see. It's inherently an active verb. Dying is what you do. It's not what happens to you. What I'm pleading for is the realization that this is already true. We, alas, seem to come to our dying time as kind of, the last person to know, and the least willing. And so, never mind digging in your heels, you actually imagine that there's plan B to dying, that it's not a a legitimate outcome of you having been alive. Hence the array that's available to you to thwart the inevitable. Then you're granted the more time that comes from treatment. And the more time seduces you to believe that the dying is now held in some kind of abeyance that it's sitting on a shelf somewhere, and it's not. 
the nature of palliative care is every referral I ever got was two things. It was too late and the person was dying, even though they'd been in treatment for some time. So by the time that you got there, this was a situation. It had been there for some time. See, the referrals always happen in the context of the more time that they're already in the middle of, that no one has told them. You know, the more time you're, you're hoping for, yes, you're in it. You're in it. That means whatever it was you hope, whatever you imagined your more time to look like is probably not going to cash out as you imagined it. But you're inhabiting it instead. You see, the, there's an imperative that comes with that realization, that there's nothing to wait for, that your more time is not in the future tense. It's in the present tense. And as it turns out in a death-phobic culture, your more time has been granted to you and is now being lived out in the discernible shadow of the fact that you're dying anyway. Now, I know that in, in your writings, you talk about we, we can participate in our dying in a couple of ways. I mean, there are a lot of ways, but I'll talk about two that mm -hmm. you mentioned. We can fight it, mm -hmm. or we can wrestle with it. Right. And you make a distinction between fighting yeah. against something and wrestling. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, speak about that, sure. please? Sure. Well, let's drop the WWF overtone of wrestling for a second, because wrestling has been in the Olympic Games since their very beginning. And it's a, actually a very elegant process. So, so fighting, by definition, is what? Fighting is, the purpose of fighting is to get the fight ended and to win. You can't win if the fight continues. There's no winning. And the, there's, it's very inelegant proposition, fighting. So you come to your death, for example, as your executioner, then the question is how far away can, from the blade can you get? That's the only repertoire available to you, fight or flight, as they say. If you come to your dying as something more in the manner of being invited to the choreography of struggle. Maybe that's a good way of saying it. Choreography means something in the order of dance. Why do you dance? You don't dance to stop dancing finally. And sometimes during the course of the dance, one person is leading and then sometimes the other. And, and it's remarkably achieved when there's some fluidity in who's leading and who's following. And this is a good understanding of what it means to die well. That sometimes the symptoms are out in front of you. Hmm? And sometimes there are, there's very little in the way of symptoms. In both cases, you're dying. So who's in charge? And the answer is nobody's in charge. The unfolding of it is what's happening. Your, your job might be to take your cue from dying, not to ignore all the cues and equate that with living. It's very intimate then. I, I can't think of something more intimate than dying, especially dying well. Because in that arrangement, never you open your door and you fold down the bedclothes. Oh, it's as intimate as it can get. This is a question of knowing who has come, who's sitting at the foot of your bed. And and with, with some degree of courage, and, you know, let me be frank, that's exactly what it takes. But it wouldn't be bad if with that courage came a lifelong 
preparation or deep understanding that was rendered to you as a child, that these days were part of your allowance and that you haven't done anything wrong when they come, whether they come to you at 15 or at 85, they're not a punishment. Would that our dying and the courage required to come to it be informed by a lifetime's um, uh, deep uh, sort of scholarship and tuition on it. Well, in a death-phobic culture, you're educated in how not to die. Even unto your dying, the advocacy is to not die. Hmm? Take, take this film, this horrendous film that was afflicted on the countryside called Bucket List. The actual tone, and, and the phrase is now in the culture. Hmm? The actual tone of the film vis-a-vis -vis dying is defiant and dismissive. That's the principal tone of it. It's heroic, you see. And the, the tone of the film means that it should have been called something that rhymes with bucket list. <laughs> that's Which we won't actual, say on air. Yeah, but that's the sentiment of it, you see. Yeah. That the proper orientation to dying is that you sneer at it. That the limitations are illusory. And that if you give into it, you're giving up. Imagine if you had that orientation to someone you're trying to figure out how to love that the whole operation is to main, see how, how much you can maintain your independence from the person you propose to love. So what I'm getting is that you're maybe encouraging us or maybe it's your experience that we might consider an invitation to the table of the angel of death, we'll say, mm. to invite that that angel in, and I'm thinking of the fairy tale of, um, I don't know, maybe Sleeping Beauty or whatever, the one angel or the one fairy that wasn't invited mm -hmm. in was the one who then gave the 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 gift of, of that long sleep to this princess. So mm -hmm. that, that I'm kind of going to a sort of mythological level, but it is that invitation that you are advocating. You know the word lucid? Of course you do. The root word of lucid is a Latin word light, L-I-G-H-T. Hmm? As is luxurious. As is Lucifer. Dying is an angel. Okay? Now, you look up the word angel, it means messenger. Principally, that's what it means. So what's the difference between angel and a demon, both messengers, angel brings the news that you know already and that you welcome and that you're comforted by. Demon brings a message that you neither seek nor appreciate when it comes, so you demonize. The truth of the matter is that dying is a light-bringing proposition. The question is whether or not you welcome what's revealed by it. Hmm? Dying is a great revelator, which is to say, I should say, possibly, not inevitably, possibly. So the chances are, are that as you're dying, you get an opportunity to live in a way that your normal life has not granted you, such that the tax man has no claim upon you, just to take one example, and the lunatic neighbors um, are a vague memory at best. And you would imagine then that some, that it's possible that the best part of you that has been somehow laying in wait for just such a time can come forward answer the bell, and testify deeply to how radically blessed you were 
to be able to live long enough to realize how fine it was to be alive. Mm. You're under no obligation to accept that you're dying when you are, which is the current mantra. You're, hopefully you'd be heartbroken about the fact that you don't get to live a lot longer. Hopefully you wish it were otherwise. And on occasional, occasionally you demand that it be otherwise. This is in keeping with dying well. This is not the opposite. I'm not talking about rancor here. I'm talking about heartbrokenness. Hmm? Heartbrokenness is the key to dying well. Because you are, as a human being, you have found life hopefully to be rather habit-forming. No? <laughs> and those habits make a deep claim upon you when you're dying, as they will me. You know, as much dying as I've seen, you'd, you'd be wrong if you thought, quote, I'm good with it. Hell no, man. I'm, I'm rather enjoying this. And the older I get, the more enjoyable it seems to be. But it's a time-limited offering. And when you're in the, in the time where time is grinding slowly and you can see the shift of gears, the obligation is to obey. Obey doesn't mean submit. Obey means attend to. What is this asking of me now? In that sense, no different from your first child appears in your house. The question is not what can you get away with or how you can keep living a life that was prenatal, but rather, what does the appearance of this baby ask of you now? And there's a fidelity in that, you see? That's the root meaning of obedience when, when dying comes to town. So I, I, I want to open up a subject, and that's what you're saying reminds me, you talk about heartbrokenness. Mm-hmm. And then it reminds me of sorrow. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of grief. And I know that you talk about how love and grief are twins. Twins, yeah. And I'd like to talk about that in just one moment. And I want to first remind our listeners that I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson, and he's the author of Die Wise. A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. I'd also like to say that that he's a um, subject of a documentary film called Grief Walker, and you might look that up and and get a hold of that that gorgeous film. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Under 
I'm here with Stephen Jenkinson. He's the author of Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And I've just brought up the idea of grief and love being twins. And Stephen, I'd love for you to say something about your understanding of that. Sure. Well, you know, you have to generalize sometimes to say anything at all. And so please take this in that, in that spirit. Uh, the Love Project, as it's uh, cast North American Top 40 Radio, if there is such a thing as Top 40 Radio anymore, uh, is, is generally a kind of feeling-driven, captivating, and capturing uh, proposition. This may be true when you're trying to figure out how to draw close to someone. Some of those dynamics apply. When you're dying, the question is not, how do you get close to someone? Nor is it even, how do you remain close to someone? While that someone is, you know, in a brailing sort of fashion, trying to find their way involuntarily out of here. No, the question that dying brings to the love project is, how do you propose to love that which isn't going to last? And it won't last no matter how much you love it which means you're going to have to find another reason to love being in love with this person that doesn't include having them or gaining more time with them or even more, quote, quality of life with them. There has to be another reason. What does it look like to love somebody who can't afford to stay? And the answer might well be something like this. Your love might be better understood now, given the presence of the dying, as the love affair that you've understood up until now, but now in reverse. Not the annihilation of the love affair, the ungluing of it, the undoing, the unbinding of it becomes the next iteration of its love, whereby you don't oblige the dying person to stick around because you love them. But rather, you, even your love now is seconded to the realities and the necessities and the proprieties of dying. So you love someone unto their death, not in spite of it, not because of it, but unto their death in some respects like a midwife would love a child not yet born. Your job is, is to see to it that your love allows you to get out of the way that you don't stand as, a, as an opponent to the departure of the one you love. You stand there as a midwife to that departure. And everything inside you screams no. Of course it does. Just like when you're you know, 14 and trying to figure out how to love somebody, everything inside you screams no. It's very similar in this respect. You know? So, so this, is, this is a way of me saying that even love must serve the realities of dying. And it is an act of love. It's not the end of your love, either as a spouse or a parent or as a grandparent, whatever the arrangement is, that you're, that you're dying is an iteration, maybe the deepest iteration of what you have come to understand love to be. Not the end of that love, but its deepest confession. So where does grief come in then as the twin of this love? Love, you could say, and it's fairly easy to see this, grief as a way of loving is fairly clear. That you, 
unlikely to grieve over something or someone that you don't have some at least nominal attachment to. And, it would, and, and that love would seem to prompt the grief. Sure. So love is a way of grieving, though. How can that possibly work? And the answer is that love's understanding includes its limits, includes its ending. No. So, so love is a way of grieving that which has not yet um, slipped from view. Grief is a way of loving that which has already done so. That sounds a little formulaic, but that's what I mean. I can remember um, a teacher once saying to me uh, early on, maybe I was, Michael and I were together maybe 20 years, and I just, we, our togetherness was our work together. It was 24 hours a day, so it wasn't just a, a marriage. It was also a huge partnership in our work. And... Um, I remember this guide said, he said, well, one day that is not going to be there anymore. Mm. And I I just reared back and I said, no, 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 wait. No, we're going to always be together. What are you mm. talking about? And he said very quietly, one of you will die. And I had never considered that. Until that moment, it had never entered my mind that devastating thought, that grievous thought that one day one of us would die. We mm -hmm. would be separate from one another one day. Again. Again. Separate again. Separate again. Mm -hmm. Separate again. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that was a gift that he gave me, not that I thought about it much or, or, or held it a, a mm. lot in my life, but it, it did set up a dynamic in me that at least gave it some attention. He probably would have done you a better favor if he said, one day both of you are going to die, not just one of you, but I, I take the, the thrust of what he said. Yeah, I mean, who gets into the love project with the end of it firmly in view as part of your intent? I mean, you get together to thwart the never, don't you? You get together to thwart the solitude. I mean, the deep kind of, frankly, irrevocable solitude that you were also born to. And that, you know, as my countryman Leonard Cohen so gorgeously said, he said, baby, let's get married. We've been alone too long. Let's be alone together. Let's see if we're that strong. Mm. That's yeah. not a bad epitaph for what you're able to pull off when you're together, to be alone together. They don't cancel each other out. They're both skills, you see. But there's no, there's no lying about it. It's a bit of a strong word, but at least proceeding as if, if you love deeply enough, then there'll, there'll be no more, only me. You know, you love in such a way that your capacity to be you again, separate from the other person, is not a casualty of them dying, that them dying conjures this forward again, the very skill you would not have sought, the ability to be, to be died on, mm. if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. hmm? I, don't want, I don't want this to sound like if everybody gets this, everything's going to be fine. I mean, we began this by talking about heartbrokenness. When I say heartbrokenness is a skill, I don't mean, as the New Age people would have it, that if you're heartbroken enough, you're not. 
because you get it and you're fine again. Come on now. Heartbrokenness is real. It makes a claim upon you. And if you're lucky, your heart, subsequent to its break, never resembles what it did when you were fairly callow and untested. I remember reading uh, something one of your mentors, Brother Blue, oh, yeah. uh, grand, grand storyteller, yeah. uh, grand uh, master yeah. storyteller. Truly. And, and uh, uh, you and he had gone to a movie, saw The yeah. Elephant the Man. The Elephant Man, yeah. And he mm-hmm. came out of that movie and, and he, he prayed. And he prayed, you know, and at the, you know, I was a kid at the time, so I thought it was a movie review. But he was praying out loud. Out in the you know in the traffic after watching a matinee film in the garish daylight, and he looked at me like that's what he was doing, and he said, apropos of a movie about someone who died because he chose to, uh, after having achieved, uh, having friends and so forth. You've seen the movie, you know the scene at the end, and I was banging on about it for a little while, and he stopped and he just looked at me and said, "My heart is broken. I never wanted to mend." This just made no sense at all in a culture that believes in intactness. You know what the word intact means? Not touched. That's what the word means. Intact. Tactile. No touching. Well, hopefully your heart is incapable of intactness after a certain point in your life. Hopefully your heart has all kind of fingerprints on it. Some from people and some from, you know, other ways of being alive that are just human. And, uh, and what Blue was praying for is a memory of how hard it is to be a human being that was not soothed by, quote, healing in the normal understanding of the term. If he had to choose between being healed and being heartbroken such that he could continue with his work, he chose it, I think. And he chose heartbrokenness as meaning that his memory was engaged through the course of his days, including all the unwelcome, unsought, and deeply disheveling memories. These things are gold to someone whose principal affliction is to testify, which I have some, I have a touch of that affliction myself, (laughs) but this is who I learned it from. I watched him do it with no one asking him to be heartbroken in their presence and all of them asking to be soothed by his presence. The, uh, the strange irony of the arrangement in a deeply human situation is when you are in the presence of someone who's skillfully heartbroken, you are soothed by that in a real way, which means you're not assured that if you live the right way, your heart will be fine. You're assured, on the other hand, that if you live deeply and in, in an adult fashion, your heart will break And your skill will be to be heartbroken on schedule. Oh, that's a lot to take in. Thank you so much for participating fully with us today, Stephen. I appreciate it so much. I appreciate the invitation, too. I've been speaking with Stephen Jenkinson. He's the author of Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, orphanwisdom.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3582.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.